Last week we began what was a belated Father's Day lesson on husbands and fathers, and I tried to introduce the subject of husbands and fathers together, or deal with the subject of husbands and fathers together, because I think they go together, not entirely, especially in our time where husbands and fathers aren't always the same person. But we talked about what the Bible says last week, mostly about being a biblical man, biblical masculinity, and what the Bible says about being a husband. Now I want to transfer, after we read a few scriptures, to talk about fathers and the role of fathers this morning. Sorry I made it into two parts, but I felt compelled to do so because of the kind of material that it is. Uh, Just in case you're wondering you weren't here, this picture here is part of a larger picture, uh, because I I think I mentioned it last week. When I went looking for husbands and fathers for a Google image, you know, to put on my computer, one of the first ones that pops up was a a gay couple of men in bed with their baby. I thought, you know, I'm just not going to do this. I'm just going to get a picture of my family and put it up there for whatever that's worth. So the big tall, the big fellow in the back is uh, my great grandfather, um, William Washington Worth Henson. My grandfather's little baby in the front. My grandmother, my great grandmother is a woman below the man in the center there. Her name is Edna York. And uh, then there's my grandfather, William Jennings Bryan Henson, little baby there. This is 1897. And then my great great grandfather's the old man in the front row there, Jared Haynes. This is all in Kentucky. And uh, that's the big, that's the whole picture. It's 10 by 3. And uh, all those Kentuckians. And as I told you last week, if you look cleverly, you'll see some people crawling up out of the woods there in the back and come up in the back. That's kind of, but there's all different kinds of people in this family. It's interesting to see, but this was a long time ago. Let's take a look at the scriptures this morning. And, uh, you know, I look at that picture. I only know, only met a couple, maybe three of those people during my lifetime that are in that picture. I look, I look at pictures now that I'm old. I look at these different pictures I see different places. I think, I wonder how many of the people are dead. When I sit, watch an older movie or TV show, I say, how many of those people are dead? Because most of them are. It's just odd that we can do that now and see all these people live a long time ago, what they look like. And, and uh, it's funny to, to notice that someday that's what's going to be where you are. You'll be, a, you'll be a picture. If you're lucky, anybody even cares. Some of you people, the only people going to see your pictures when they buy it in goodwill, you know, in the old stack of old pictures they're going to decorate. But anyway, just kidding. True. Nobody's remembered for very long. And uh, if, the, if you are remembered, it's only by a very few. And then the eighth generation that goes by, they know less and less about anything about you at all. So that's why it's so important to have your name written in heaven. By God, because he doesn't forget those kind of things. Wives, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul does, in the longest passage about marriage in the New Testament. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. And therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, we're not going to deal with this passage very much except to point out to you, as I mentioned before, on many occasions. The most important words here in this passage are the, is the word as or even as. Because he doesn't just say, wives be in subjection to your husbands, as we often quote it. 
meaning you got to do whatever your husband says every time and no questions asked. He's your commander. He's, you know, your Lord and God. That's not what this is. This is subjection as unto the Lord. So he defines what the subjection is. Husband is the head of the wife. Not any way he wants to be. Not like a military commander like some people think. He is to be the head of the wife as Christ is also head of the church in the same manner, in the same way, in the same nature, characteristics. And we could do a lot on that, we have. And then, therefore, why should you be subject to Christ as you, your husbands, I should say, as the church is subject to Christ? Well, how is that? What's the nature of that? Look into that and you'll see. I don't think this means, as some people think, that, that wives don't have to respect to do what, you know, pay attention to their husbands. It obviously can't mean that. Nor does it mean that they're to be slaves and servants in some menial way. Because he goes on to talk about that in the other passages, which we're not going to deal with this morning. Now then he says, husbands, which we're about this morning. Not only should you be the head of your wife, which is a command of the husband. He must assume that responsibility. He must take that responsibility. But secondly, the second command is husbands are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for. So he doesn't just leave love open and let Hollywood define it. You know, love is love is love. That's not how this is defined. This isn't defined as loving your wife as Christ loved the church. And that has certain characteristics. Same self-sacrificial, not self-oriented love, but self-sacrificial love of Christ. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. These all are about how a husband should treat his wife and the esteem in which he should hold her. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is how he's to view his wife. That's his object in the way he treats her, is to raise her up and glorify her. So husbands, in the, same, the word so should probably also have a circle around it. So, in the same way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. So the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church, and this is the way a husband should treat his wife. And we talked about that some last week. For members of his body, flesh is flesh and bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2, all the way back to creation. This is not about just, this law really doesn't apply just to Christians. This is a statement of the way God made man the way it ought to be from the beginning for all people. We know the world will never listen to this and pays no attention to it and denigrates it every chance it gets. But that doesn't change the fact this is what God designed from the beginning for all people. And that's why he quotes Genesis 2. This is a great mystery. We don't understand all aspects of how the husband and wife are to be together or Christ and the church to be together. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular... In spite of the fact that you don't can't grasp all that's being said here, that's no excuse not to do what is said here and what you can do. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This passage isn't even altogether to be taken as well, this is what the how the church ought to teach about marriage. I think it, that is negated by the idea, let each one in particular, each one of you do this. It doesn't matter what other people in the church do with their wives as a husband. It doesn't matter what other people do. It doesn't matter what anybody else does or says. What matters is that in particular you do what you ought to do towards your wife. 
That's what makes the difference. In particular, you do this. So many of us, whether we realize it or not, we push off our responsibilities onto other people, onto the church, what the church is doing, or onto the elders, what they're doing, or whatever it may be, or what society says, or what my husband says, what my wife does. And I think this means here in, in this, this word in particular, although I've never dwelt on this much in my preaching about it, it means whether your wife does what she's supposed to do or not, you must love your wife as God says to love her. And whether your husband treats you like he should, you must respect him as you ought to do, whether he does it or not. And then the Bible said for husbands, love your wives, do not be bitter against them. Those are these two commands. Now, Let's move on and try to look at a couple of these other. I don't think I went to the place I want to go to. Let's look at the, the, the idea of a father, and let's start here where we kind of started a little bit last week with this definition of biblical masculinity from Douglas Wilson in the little book, How to Exasperate Your Wife. The word exasperate is that word bitter. It's another translation of the word bitter. It means don't. Be exasperated by your wife, I think, is probably the more correct translation. And that means because she's a woman, does things her way, and is different than you. Don't be bitter against her. Especially don't be bitter against her when she's trying to do what God told her to do and be, be respectful to you as her husband. Don't be exasperated or bitter towards your wife. Biblical masculinity, Wilson says, is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. I really like that. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. I think that's exactly what headship is. I would put biblical headship there, probably for a masculine but He makes a broader application in his little book. This is biblical headship. It isn't being the boss. Although it, it, bosses are, are responsible, the responsible person. That's what it means to take responsibility for something and you end up trying to control how it is so you can make it what it should be. But biblical headship is the glad assumption. That means happily assuming or taking on yourself. The word assumption here may be confusing to some people because we think of an assumption as something we assume to be true. That isn't what he's saying here. The assumption of something is taking something upon yourself. The glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. In other words, a husband's main job and the job of men in general is to assume responsibility for things in home, in the church, in society, in a sacrificial way, not in an arrogant or self-centered way, not about just pleasing themselves. It's doing what is best for other people that you're responsible for. That's what makes you a good husband. He is doing what he is best as far as he can do it for, for the benefit of those in his care, his wife in this case. And so he loves her as Christ loved the church, and he assumes that. What this is getting at, as we're going to see, well, a little bit, is that, well, we did this a little bit last week. I don't want to go back too far in this. When you go right back to what we're studying in Bible class in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan come and t- comes and tempts Eve, and she takes the fruit and gives it to her husband, and he eats it too. We see in that story, and especially in the, in the uh, consequences of that story, Adam was punished because it says he heeded the voice of his wife or hearkened to the voice of his wife and ate. Meaning that Adam's sin in eating involved being irresponsible. He knew better 
He knew he shouldn't do it. He knew she shouldn't do it. But he said, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I'm going to eat this so she'll be quiet. I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit. He did. He did not assume sacrificial responsibility for the woman that God gave him to care for and to be head over. He His headship faltered. He was not the head of his wife in the biblical sense because he went ahead with whatever she said just because she was pretty, had a sweet voice, and he didn't want to rock the boat. Is this not how men act? Women think men want to dominate them. Men just don't want to be bothered by anything. They want to go fishing. Seriously. Men don't want to run everything. It's women that want to run everything. The Bible says that. Okay, That's a struggle that you Christian women have. And I'm not saying this to be mean at all. I'm trying to point out something that would be very useful for your heart if you could get, a, get your head around it for a moment and drop all the feminism for a few minutes. The dilemma that you have is you want to run everything, but you know you shouldn't, and so you're trapped in this as a Christian woman. You may even know better than your husband what to do. You, you may, you indeed may be smarter than him. And you may know better, but you're not the head. And so you have to struggle with that. Most women just ignore it and do whatever they want and pressure and do all the other things that they do with their husband to get him to do what they want. And they try to get their way. And in the end, they get mad because they get their way. And the problem, the thing they get mad about is because they can't respect the man for being that way. They can't respect him truly. For just giving her whatever she wants and going along and ignoring it all. They don't respect that kind of man. They may act like that's the kind of, they may raise their sons to be that kind of man, but that isn't the kind of man they respect. Because they're going against the nature which God put in them as females. And when men do not, and we're going to see this morning, a little bit later, when men do not accept their responsibility in a sacrificial way, they become weak men. They become worthless men. They become immoral men. They become violent men when they don't accept their responsibility. It brings out everything bad in the masculine nature, not doing what God told them to do, which was take the responsibility and lead in the right way, not not as some kind of a tyrant or military commander. And so both of the sexes have their blame in this whole thing that we see around us in culture and in marriages and society. And it's been that way ever since the beginning of time. And that's why we're all trapped in this sometimes. But if we can ever lay some of that aside, especially the cultural things of our society, and, and learn as men, being an actual man according to God's word, not according to society or women's magazines, but a real man, is to assume sacrificial responsibility for those in your life. And when you do that the right way, with, with humility and with knowledge of God's will, then... Everything will go better for those around you. So how do you acquire the authority to live like this? Well, I'll tell you what, you can't, you can't make your wife be in submission to you. That's not your job. She is commanded by God to be in submission to you. That's her problem. Your job is to be the head. Well, she won't let me. Well, you got, I, I, you know, now we're in a whole nother thing here. How do you get that authority? Well, he says it naturally flows to those who take responsibility. Authority routinely flees from those who seek to blame others. There you go, men. You want to blame other people for what's going on in your life and what you are? Then authority is going to flee you. You're not going to have any authority 
from those around you. But if you will accept responsibility for who you are and how you act and what you do and how things turn out, then you will you will have some authority. Now, uh, I want to skip. I had I was going to go through some. I'm going to skip a couple things here because uh, we'll just go right back through what we. What's the best gift I can give my wife, according to Wilson? On an earthly level, the best gift you can give your wife is to be a true and faithful father to her children. What's the next best thing I can do for my... What's the best thing I can do for my children? On an earthly level, the best thing you can do for your children is to love their mother. And I believe both those statements are absolutely true. These people that have a marriage, and the whole marriage focuses on the children being happy, usually are going to fail a lot of the time. And if they do get the child raised in some fashion, what's the matter? It, It killed it? Thank you, Gary. I have one friend in the audience. Do I? Okay. Nobody else tried to help me when they knew I was. He could tell I'm doing. I was messing up there. I did. Okay. Well, now you're blaming me for being for being handicapped and crippled. You people never stop. Best thing you can do for your children is love their mother, and I believe that's absolutely true. You, these marriages where the both parents just, especially what happens to the woman sometimes, all the whole life is the, is the children. She even kicks the husband out of the bed and puts the child next to her. That or puts the child between them. Those marriages have a significantly high rate of failure, and the children don't even turn out that well. So I told my children, and I, you know, this becomes then the eternal standard of what's good and right, because I told my children this. You're not going to come between me and your mother. That's it. Especially in our bed, you're not going to come between us. You can sleep on the floor if you have to be scared, but you're not coming up here. And I call it the H maneuver here. You're laying there. The kids get in the middle of you, and then they turn sideways and do the H, and they try to push you even further apart. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Not, Not happening in my house. Wasn't going to happen. I said, I can make more of you. I only have one of her. I can make more of you, and I enjoy doing it. So you're down the, you got to know where you are in the cycle of things here. Now, when I said that jokingly, I think they thought I was joking. I don't know. What I was saying is, we're going to be together for the rest of your life, and, and that's the way it's going to be. And they had a peace of mind that don't even know they had because of that. I think. And then guess what happens to the woman when they have a husband who will take responsibility for the family and love her as she should and therefore enable them both to take care of the children. She's happier because she knows her children are going to be taken care of by someone. But when we focus everything on the children, like people do today, we miss out on all things. Now then, what's the next best thing you can do for your children? This is a hard one here. Get a job as a man. Where you have to work hard, make sure you do in fact in fact work hard, providing the mother with the wherewithal to, be, to feed and clothe them, and provide them all with a godly education. Now, this is such an outdated, archaic, primitive Fred Flintstone idea here, which I happen to agree with, by the way, scripturally, that the woman is the house ruler, according to First Timothy. She is to rule the house, guide the household. It says, "Oiko despotes." Oikos is the Greek word for house. Despot is the word for ruler, a despot. Same word we get that from. Her responsibility as the wife and the mother is to care for the household, and that's not just sweeping the floor. And so the husband goes and works hard 
does what is needed to provide them with things, the food, the shelter, everything for the wife so she can do her job of caring for the household. I know that's primitive, but that seems to be the pattern of the New Testament. For good or for ill, uh, people won't follow that today, but I think that's the pattern. And it provides then both people in the marriage with responsibility that suits their nature as a male and a female, and then provides them with opportunities to love each other and to love their children. And then what both of them have for when this is all over, they both have the, the, the personal contentment of a companion, but they're also able to produce offspring that can bring them joy and help in later years. Now, what are the aims in being a father? Well, the primary aim of being a parent, and fathers are given in the Bible the primary duty. See, our culture has flipped in, in a few generations everything about this. We view children as the woman's responsibility. Well, in some respects, some parts of caring for children is a woman's responsibility. She's to guide the house. But as far as the overall responsibility of children, the Bible clearly says fathers are to take charge of that. Fathers are to be in charge of the children. Is that what's reflected in our common culture? No, not at all. And it's not good. And I think some women resent it, and they probably should. That's why, but that's why they ever think it's dumped on them, because they're the ones that say, oh, no one ever suffered like a woman having a baby, and this is my baby. As soon as a baby, I'll tell you young men something you better be careful of sometimes. You better not fight a woman like this, because sometimes the woman is after a baby, and as soon as she gets the baby, you're out. You're out of the marriage. You're done, because she's got a baby. I've seen it many, many times. You're done. Now, you set yourself up for that as a man who won't take responsibility for things. And, and you allow it to go on. But you are the one, according to God, who is responsible for caring for your children and taking care of them and being responsible for them. And fathers have that primary duty. Two duties, I'll summarize them here. Your, your duty as a parent is to guide your offspring to be secure, productive, and functioning adults. We could spend some time on each one of those things, secure, productive, and functioning adults. That's your job as a father. You take each of your children as they grow up. You find out what abilities that you give them abilities. You show them how to do things. You teach them things by taking them around with you, you know, fix things or watch you do this and that and the other. You do things with them to help them see what abilities they have. And then you channel each child into what it can and can't do well into what it can do well, I should say, away from the other things, and you make them secure in the fact that you love them, you're going to care for them, they have a place that they're always going to be loved, you make them feel secure in that, you build them up, you teach them that they should that they have self-respect because you respect them, and then you make them productive, knowing how to take care of themselves and do what they ought to do, being a male or a female, and then you teach them how to function in society. How's that sound? Do you think we need more parents that will do that today? Oh, yes. This is where so much of the problem we have. We want to talk about this, passing this law, passing that law. Laws won't fix the problem we have because they go back to this right here. Fathers who will not do their jobs and mothers who will not let fathers do their jobs. Both. The other thing you have to do as a parent, according to the Bible, I think, is to guide your offspring to be faithful Christians in adulthood. You have a responsibility to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the Bible says. And you have a responsibility to try to teach them spiritual values, spiritual things, morality, right and wrong, 
responsibility for their actions so that one day they can feel that they're responsible, that they should act a certain way toward God and do what's right and become a Christian. Serve Him. You teach them humility in the way you treat them. That they're not everything. They don't get everything they want. Nor should they. Now you can, the first of these two goals or aims is entirely possible to guide your offspring to be secure, productive, functioning adults. I don't care if, even if they're intellectually challenged or handicapped in some way. You can still teach them that. Now the other goal is much more difficult to teach them to become a Christian and to guide them in that way, at least to, to final fruition. That's partly up to them. In fact, most of the, in the end, it's up to them to become a Christian. But you can influence that greatly, and you should not leave that goal off of what you're doing. So children are a responsibility and a blessing of masculinity. In other words, being a man, being a male, your relationship to children is twofold in this. For one, they are a responsibility that you have to care for your offspring. And I'm not just talking about your physical offspring. Many of you are put, are really should be in a position or are in a position where you need to care for nieces and nephews and grandchildren somebody or somebody else's children who need caring for. You may be in that position as a man. And sometimes you have to accept that responsibility. That's sort of what Boaz did with Ruth and, and raising up children by her. He assumed responsibility that he didn't have to because he was a good man. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. They're what's given to you as an inheritance. People worry about what their inheritance is. God says your children are your inheritance, at least in, in this is a general statement, of course. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks to his enemies in the gate. Now, you all know I have five kids and coming up on 20 grandchildren here, and so I'm, I'm maybe not the right one to speak about this. But I believed in this passage when I was young. I was taught to believe it was true. I'm not ashamed I have five kids. People tried to make me ashamed. People in the church tried to make me ashamed of that because I was going to be harmful to the world and the ecology and so forth by having five children. And I know they tried to make me ashamed of having 20 grandchildren, partly. But the ironic thing is, I have people that I know who made fun of me about this when I was a young man for having all these kids. And now all these same people on Facebook will hear that I've got 20 grandchildren. Oh, you're so lucky. I'm not so lucky. This was a plan. You didn't, you didn't want in on that plan. And I've told them that. You didn't want in on that plan now that it's here and it's too late to do anything about it. Now you see. This is a blessing. This is my inheritance. It's all I've got. And it's going to outlive me by a long shot down through time, for good or for ill. Now, that's just me. Some people are not blessed by God to have any children. This was true in the Bible. We see it over and over again. There were women and couples that didn't have any children. It doesn't make you a bad person. So don't take what I'm saying here that way at all. That's not how I mean it. But it wasn't viewed as modern society views it, that having children is a bad thing, nor were people... We have a whole political party devoted to people not having children because it's bad for the environment or some other thing. This isn't a Bible example of how things ought to be. This is the wrong attitude altogether about that. And they seek to exterminate whole groups of children before they're ever born 
because they might come into some place something that's disadvantaged. This isn't the Bible attitude. Children are a blessing from God. And the fact that men or women don't want to take responsibility for them doesn't make what they're doing right or good. And it won't produce good results for society either. You know, there are countries in the world like Japan and, and Germany who have reached a point where they may not survive as a culture because they don't have anybody to replace the people that are dying. They've had so few children. Even, even communist China reversed its policy on having children this year. They can now have two. If they have had more than one, they used to take the kid and kill it. Now, that they, they usually took girls because boys are better. We all understand that. Kidding. That's what people think. Well, in that kind of society, boys are better because they can work and they can work in the field. They can do this and that and the other. How misguided, how, how wrong. But that's the way secular people think. And then now they said you can have two. Aren't they so generous? We just, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you just love to have a government like that that's so generous to give you the right to have two, two children? Anyway... They're going extinct because they don't even do basic human things like reproduce. So, in, I'm sorry, uh, um, got that repeated there. Notice what the Bible says about fathers more specifically now. Sorry, sorry I'm ranting and raving. I've been doing it all morning. I don't even know why. I, I, got, I got eight hours sleep last night. I'm going to have to cut back on that apparently. <laughs> Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. And you fathers, he says... Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So there's two contrasts here. Provoking them to wrath, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We could spend more time on that. We'll probably come back to some of that. That's what he says in Ephesians. A lot in there for fathers. doesn't say mothers, since your job is to raise the children, here's what you should do. Notice that. Pay attention to what he's saying here. You father you to take responsibility for guiding your house in this way. And I know you can't do everything. She may be home with them more than you are around them, but that's fine. But you need to set the tone as a father to take responsibility for your house as to the way things ought to be and how the how ought to be taken care of. And give your wife some assistance in this. Too many husbands just throw everything on the mother. She's scrambling to, to feed them and clothe them and do whatever else, and they're tugging on her all day long. And you come home and play video games. Or go, go out with your friends or something. This is speaking against that. This isn't to say that you push the mother away and she's not involved with the children. This is saying, men, be a man. Take responsibility for your children. And you make sure that things are going well. Find out what your wife needs and find out how things can be better in your house. Set some standards and some rules that are reasonable and loving and then make sure those rules and standards get, get enforced. Lead. Take responsibility. Then he says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is a companion passage over in the book of Colossians. The very, these two chapters, Ephesians 5 and 6 and Colossians 3, are, very, are parallel. They, they talk about the same subjects. In this case, it says something a little bit different here, although I'm not sure it's too different. Notice what it says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath and to discouragement. The command to you as fathers is don't provoke your children. 
And, and so, you know, as a young father, I, I tried to listen to that. I, I, listen, I'm not going to stand here before you and pretend that I'm some kind of outstanding father. I'm not going to pretend to that. Case. We, you all can see uh, my failures. But I, I do think this is the right thing to understand as a father. You're, what, what did I say about last week about men not taking responsibility and women trying to take that? God tells both of the sexes what it's hard for them to do. He doesn't tell them. When he says husbands love your wives, that word love, as I told you last week, was, means agape, love them selflessly. That's hard for a man to do. That's why he tells them to do that. When he tells a woman to, to submit to their husband, that's hard for her to do. If it came naturally, he wouldn't have to tell them to do it. Now he tells the fathers, don't provoke your children. Why? Because the tendency of a father is to provoke the children. To push them away, be harsh with them, ignore them, whatever it may be. And so you have two things as a father that you must guard against provoking your children and take it seriously. Number one is provoking them to wrath. You know, you can stay after a child so much, criticize everything they do, even who they are, so much that they become hostile and angry. Whatever punishments you enact, and I have no problem with corporal punishment or anything like that, well, with limitations, but whatever you do as a punishment, it cannot lead to wrath. You've got to be careful about what that is. And you accomplish that by showing love and common sense and guidance and compassion and, sense and sensible. There's a lot of ways you can talk about We'll have a whole sermon on discipline this morning. But you need to be cautious that that's what husband men do. So it's interesting. Sometimes, well, let's go to the other one, discouragement. I, I think it's easy for fathers to provoke their sons to wrath. I may be wrong about that. I know they can provoke their daughters to wrath too, but female anger just looks a little bit different than male anger. And if you fathers find yourself provoking your sons to wrath, you need to back up and be careful about that. You're, you're, not, you're disobeying God, whether you think it's good for them or not, to keep them always angry and hostile toward you and everybody around them. You're not obeying God when you do that. Now, on the other side of the coin, you may have another kind of child, maybe she's a female, who you can easily revoke to discouragement. I saw this in, when I taught school for a little while in a private school, and the kids would, I watched them in class, had the same ones in class, or small classes, and then some of them would come sit at lunchtime, eat their, eat their sandwich there in the classroom with me and stuff, and I saw these girls in there, and the seventh graders, eighth graders. One of them says to me, she's so smart, pretty for that age, you know, just had everything going for her. You'd think she was on top of the world. And she says, here's a straight-A student. Offhand comment. My father is never happy with me. I've never done anything in my life to make him happy, please him. I look at this girl and I'm thinking, how can that be? Well, because the father was so demanding about all of her grades and getting a perfect score on every little pop quiz and how she dressed and how she looked and what she did and how she moved and how she did her hair. She couldn't find any peace. She wasn't angry. I predict she might be angry later in life. She was discouraged. Discouraged, really, be, I couldn't believe how discouraged. And, and the others chimed in. Now, of course, you know, teenage girls say anything, especially to comfort one another, sort of. But I believe there was an element of truth going on there. 
These young ladies were discouraged because nothing they could do could please their father. I didn't even get into what they can please their mother because he was so harsh on that. And let me tell you something. You, you can treat your sons differently than your daughters. You can, oftentimes, not every time. But there's a, I mean, Adam, I, I could have beat him with a two ball for every day and he still looked at me and said, do it again. It didn't hurt me. You know, that was Adam. I could go like this to Susan. Just look at her and she's falling apart. She, she knew how to play me. I know that now. I understand now she was playing me, but not altogether playing me. They needed something different from me. But I had two commands that God told me. Don't provoke them to wrath and don't provoke them to discouragement. That I had to keep in mind as a father. Hard, not easy to do. So, so harsh and overbearing fathers, they provoke their children to wrath and discouragement together. Weak, permissive, indulgent, weak fathers. Many, that's maybe the most common kind of father in our day. They produce undisciplined, angry, and selfish. You think you're going to make your children happy by giving them what they want? You're going to make them angry. It's a complicated process, but that's what happened. They throw their children into the fire. They don't really love them because they never really say, this is wrong, you've got to do this. And, and, and stay firm with that. And both these extremes are selfish attempts to avoid trouble or embarrassment by the parents. They either don't want to bother with the kids or they're embarrassed by the kids and so they don't want them to, they harsh on them. They don't show unselfish concern for the child. That's what the problem there is. And absentee fathers, they seem to produce both wrath and discouragement together also. We have an epidemic of that in our society all across the entire culture. And, And it's producing terrible results all the way up and down the line. Now, biblical masculinity then is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And that's the message I want to leave with you men today, whether you're father yet or, or whether you're husband yet or whether it's already past time for you to be that and you've already messed up. You need to understand what your job is from God because you can still help others. And that is you assume and you take upon your shoulders, God gave you big wide shoulders compared to your wife, you take on your shoulders the, the bad job and undesirable job of being the leader in your family in the right way as Christ led the church. You take on the responsibility of caring for your children both physically and spiritually in every way. That's your responsibility. And it doesn't matter if the society approves of this or not. It doesn't matter if your neighbors approve. It doesn't matter if your mother-in-law approves. You, you need the approval of God in, the, in your life that you live. Thank you for listening today. I appreciate it very much. And we're, we're going to close our assembly this morning by singing a song as we do, as our custom is, number, number uh, <clears throat> 454, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. We're going to sing this song to encourage you to obey the gospel of Christ. Or this morning, if you need prayer for a failure in your life, for some other problem in your life, we'll pray with you about that. If this morning you need to become a Christian and be baptized in his name for the mission of your sins, you come right to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.